Go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of John. We're going to be diving into John chapter 2 today. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that today's passage is one of the most unusual and possibly even controversial, depending on where you want to go with things. Uh, Of all of the things that John says, it's a little bit of an odd passage. Um, But as we're going to look at it this morning, we're going to see that it talks about some of the most amazing things that Jesus did and just a beautiful picture for us. Now, I want to go back to something we mentioned last week. If you remember last week when the disciples asked Jesus where he was staying, before they did, he asked them the question, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? And one of the things we talked about last week was that's the question that we all need to answer in one way, shape, or form or another. What is it that I'm looking for out of life? What am I looking for to give me satisfaction and especially to give me joy? So I want to lean into that idea this morning. What is the thing that makes you happy today? Now, we will say happiness and joy are not the same thing. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But as we're looking at it, where are you looking to try to find some kind of deeply rooted satisfaction out of life or joy or happiness? What is it that you go to? Is it that next purchase you're going to make? Is it maybe the next promotion that you're going to get or graduation and finally getting out and getting a real job, which, by the way, it's not as much fun as it sounds uh, for those of you who are still in school. What is that thing? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's some kind of something that you think, if I could just get this, I would be happy. Like, I, I would really just be settled if I could reach this level. If I could have this going on in my life, I, I think I would really finally and fully just be happy. Well, This morning, again, we do draw a distinction between happiness and joy, but at the same time, what I want you to see is what you're really looking for, that satisfaction, that joy can only be found in following Christ. Now, as we look at that this morning, we're going to look at an interesting passage to be able to draw that from because the word joy actually never appears in this passage. However, what I want to kind of leave you with this main idea as we go through and explain what we're seeing here in this passage, and that is this. Following Jesus brings joy. Fighting Jesus brings judgment, okay? Now, we're going to look at two stories here, two accounts that John gives us of two events that happened in Jesus's ministry. One is at the very beginning of his ministry. In fact, it's the first sign that Jesus did, likely the first miracle that Jesus had done. And then one thing that John does that's interesting is he doesn't move chronologically through Jesus's life. So what he does is he starts with the very first miracle that Jesus did. Then he jumps ahead to the very end of Jesus's life, to the very last week that Jesus was ministering on earth. And when he does, we're going to see this juxtaposition, if you will, of joy and judgment. So Here's how we're going to do that. We're basically going to just look at it from these two perspectives as we look at each of these. Now, the first part of this is the story of Jesus turning water into grape juice, if you're too hard line of a Southern Baptist, uh, or wine, as it actually seems to be. And we're going to talk about that. As I bring up the issue of wine, I understand that there are going to be a lot of diversity of opinion as to whether the Bible is okay with drinking, and is this Jesus saying that everybody ought to go out and drink wine? We're not really going to touch that this morning, okay? That's not the point of the passage. That's not what John is relating. Our position as a church over the last several years has been be wise. Just don't be stupid, okay? Whatever you're doing, if you do it in good conscience, make sure you can do it in good conscience and in wisdom, okay? So what you see Jesus doing here is in a different context than where we're at. 
It's a different world, different culture, different set of circumstances. So this is not necessarily a guarantee that everybody should drink wine today. It's also not a prohibition against it. So it's not either of those. Wine we're going to see as Jesus creates water into wine is a symbol of joy. And we're going to go through a little bit more of that. But there's a lot going on culturally in this passage that takes a little bit of explanation. So we're going to do a lot of explaining today. I may not even yell all that much, which is surprising for those of you who've been with us. Um, It's going to be a little bit more teaching today. We're going to look at a lot of different passages to try to explain the beauty of this picture. But then after we see Jesus changing water into wine, then we see him going to the temple at the end of his ministry and flipping tables, right? He goes in, he makes a whip, he drives out the money changers and drives out the animals and does all of this in this act of judgment against the system that had developed there in the temple. So we're going to juxtapose these two and see what God has to say from us or for us from it. Now, by the way, if you want to talk further about whether we ought to drink or something like that, I would love to have coffee or lunch or breakfast with you. Um, Probably not over a glass of wine, okay? If that gives you an idea of where I land on it, personally. Um, yeah. There's, like, I'm just, I know, I'm just really working on opening that can of worms, aren't I? We're, just put the lid back on it. Put your piece of saran wrap and a rubber band on it. We'll talk about it later, okay? For this morning, we want to go to the story, though, and see Jesus at the feast doing an absolutely beautiful thing, okay? So starting here in John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 and make the point that following Jesus brings joy. That's going to be our first point this morning. Starting here in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Verse 4. This is not as rude as it seems, by the way. Jesus said, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for the Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom to him and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you've kept the fine wine until now. Now, verse 11 is a really key verse for us. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay? Now, stop right there for right now. I want you to see that following Jesus brings joy. So let's go through this picture of what's going on at the wedding to see what that is all about. Now, as I said, this is one of the most unusual stories for us because so much of it feels foreign. On the other hand, it's full of ways in which Jesus is fulfilling some of the beautiful pictures and promises that you find all throughout the Old Testament. So let's walk through a little bit of this as we go kind of through it. First off, you notice that John says this is on the third day. Now, scholars debate about, is this the third day ever since there was the interaction with John, and then the next day there were interaction with the new disciples, and then it's the third day, or is it the third day since he called Nathaniel to himself? Which is it? The Bible's pretty ambiguous about it, so we don't want to try to make a big point out of something that the Bible doesn't make a big point about, okay? And that's actually going to be a key principle for us as we drive through the rest of this passage. We don't know for sure whether it's the third day after he called Nathaniel, third day in sequence out of what we see in verse 1. But what we do know is the third day is kind of significant for us as Christians, isn't it? Because what did Jesus do on the third day after he died? He rose from the grave. 
So what we see here is whether the exact significance of it, we don't want to dive in too deep, but we do know for sure that John is already giving us just a little hint of what Jesus was going to do. There's just these little markers that on the third day, Jesus begins his ministry, and we know that on the third day, we also see Jesus ending his earthly ministry by raising from the dead, right? Kind of cool that John's putting that little parallel for us, okay? Now, let's talk about the wedding itself. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details. We don't know who's getting married. We don't know why Mary was involved in this. We, it does seem that Mary was probably involved in the serving of the food. Um, so that probably means there was some kind of family connection. This is Galilee, fairly small area. Um, we don't even know exactly where the town of Cana is. I'm sure if you take a tour of the Holy Land, they'll tell you exactly where it is, but most scholars say we don't know for sure where exactly Cana was. So this is a small town. It's a wedding, and we don't even know anything really about it, but we do know that Jesus is there, and that's going to change everything about it. To give you some idea, though, as you think about weddings, how many of you absolutely love going to a wedding and a reception? I am not you. I just don't, I, if, a, if a wedding reception goes more than like an hour and a half, I'm done. Like I just, I just don't enjoy it. Our wedding, uh, we got married at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. They had three weddings there a weekend. And so we had the two o'clock slot, which meant we had from two o'clock to four o'clock to have the wedding and the reception and be out of there. That's how I like it done, okay? We had cheese, we had crackers, we had dessert, uh, peanuts, we had dessert mints. Like that was it, like that's how I want it, okay? But in those days, a Jewish wedding feast could last up to seven days. As a dad of two daughters, I cringe at the fact that the family was responsible for providing food and wine for all seven days, okay? As a dad with daughters, I'm already telling you guys, y'all are going to have to elope, all right? This is just... Can you imagine the expense? But here's the thing. Remember that, that in that century or in that era, they're in a, a honor-shame culture, okay? Honor-shame means that if you don't do something right according to kind of the cultural perspective, you bring shame and dishonor on your family. So one of the major social faux pas was running out of wine or food at the wedding. Well, what happened? They ran out of wine. This could look really bad on the family. Again, we don't know how closely connected Mary is to this, but obviously she knows what's going on. They try to take care of this before it gets out to all of the guests and everybody's figured out, oh, they're scrambling to try to figure out where to get wine. So she comes to Jesus and she says, hey, they're out of wine. Now, we don't believe that Jesus had done any miracles up to this point. There are some apocryphal stories that make it sound like Jesus did stuff as a baby and things, but there's no biblical evidence that Jesus had performed any miracles of his own until this point. So we don't really know what Mary was expecting him to do. She obviously knew there was something special about him, and she wasn't fully aware of everything that Jesus really was at this point, but she knew that there was something he might be able to do about it. So she said, hey, they're out of wine. Now, Jesus' response in verse 4 seems really offensive to us, especially if you've got a translation that doesn't soften it like ours does. The, the NIV says, dear woman, which is like, oh, that's really sweet and tender. And if you've got a King James or another translation, it just says, woman, what's that got to do with me, right? And to us, that sounds really rude. Like, Jesus, how dare you backtalk your mama like that? She's going to take her flip-flop and, you know, like... That's not what's going on. It's not that. In fact, you, if you want any verification of that, you can go to chapter 19 when Jesus is on the cross and in this very tender moment, he makes sure that the apostle John is there to take care of his mom. He refers to her as woman there as well. So it's not culturally the same thing as if I looked at my wife and said, woman, that, yeah, that would not go as well, right? That's not what he's doing. 
Um, have you guys, by the way, total aside, have you guys seen the TikTok trend where they're getting kids to tell their mom to shut up and watch what the dad does? I would murder my children before you had a chance to tell me that this was a joke. Um, if your mama tells you to do something and you tell her to shut up, we're digging a hole in the backyard. <laughs> this is not what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus is not going, woman, what's this got to do with me? No, he's saying, woman, my hour has not yet come. Now, the interesting thing about this is that phrase, my hour, is something that John uses about five or six times through the gospel to point us to the hour of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's what he's pointing to as the hour that's not yet come. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, puts it this way, and I think this was probably the best way to understand it. Jesus knows that as soon as he starts doing miracles, he's starting officially into the road that will lead to the cross. Jesus knows how this ends up. He is God in the flesh. So in a sense, he may be sitting there saying, woman, my hour has not yet come. We're not ready to start this path that's going to lead me to the cross. But in some sense, the Father gave him the freedom to do it, and this is the very first sign that Jesus is the Messiah. So here he says, I love Mary's response too, by the way. She, Jesus says, woman, what's this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. She looks at the servants and says, do whatever he says. Now, by the way, for those who like to venerate Mary, um, realize that this is Mary deferring to Jesus. This is not her in charge of the situation. She's stepping back and saying, now, this is Jesus. This is your deal. Do whatever he says, right? So now you get this odd note where it says that there were these six water pots that could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water each that were for purification. If you remember, the Jews had a lot of ceremonial washings that they were supposed to do. And so you can imagine over seven days, if you're supposed to wash your hands before you touch any kind of food, you're going to go through a whole lot of water. And interestingly, these are stone jars, which means they would have had to have been carved out of the stone themselves. And that also meant that they were not susceptible of becoming unclean like clay jars. So there's some things in the Jewish law going on here. You have these stone jars that are used for purification. They can't become unclean because they can be cleaned. If it was a clay jar, you would have to break it if it became unclean. So you've got these jars that are sitting there, and they're ready to be filled up with water to be used for the purification rituals. It's interesting, isn't it? All of those ceremonies in the Jewish law were shadows, the book of Hebrews tells us, to point to the one who would ultimately give our cleansing, the one who would ultimately be the one to cleanse us from our sins. Now, he's sitting in the wedding feast, looking at the jars for purification. He's getting ready to replace what those symbolize. Now, he sits there, he tells the guys, verse 7, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. You know, it's a fun thought experiment. When did it actually change? Jesus never says, be wine, right? Was it, was it when they filled it up with water? Did it happen then? Or, or was it when they actually drew it out to take it to the head waiter? Was it water as long as it was in the jar? And then when they drew it out, it became wine? We don't know. It's just kind of cool to think about. But at some point, and by the way, how many of you guys have heard this story before? Okay, all right? Most of us in this room have heard this before. It's easy for us to sit there and say, oh yeah, that's, that's the water and the wine thing. Stop for just a second. Water into wine. Like, you realize that's a miracle, right? 
You can't just go to, to Walmart and walk down the bottled water aisle and all of a sudden it all becomes you know, Chateau Morissette or whatever, right? You, you can't do that. This is a miracle. I think sometimes because of the connotations of drinking in our society and, and all those kind of things, we've lost the incredible fact that Jesus literally just made 120 to 180 gallons of wine. We'll talk in a minute about exactly how much that is, just for those of us non-drinkers who, who don't have a sense of scale for that. But as he makes this, here's the idea. As he's going through, like I said, hold on, man, I got ahead of my notes. Wow. All right, this is setting the stage. We've got these 120 to 180 gallons of water. We're seeing that at Jesus' direction, they fill it. But now why wine? Why is it that the Messiah, out of everything he could do as a symbol of his coming and the kingdom of God coming to bear on earth, why is the first thing he does creating 120 to 180 gallons of wine? It just seems really random to us, doesn't it? It doesn't if you know your Old Testament. As you look through the Old Testament, you're going to see that wine is a whole lot of things. For one, wine played an important part in their culture. The water was often unsafe to drink, so wine was used as a safe way to drink because the alcohol in the wine would kill anything that was in the water. So it was a very common thing for them to drink table wine pretty much all the time. That was just sort of a normal part of their culture. But the Bible even tells us there in Psalm 104 that wine is one of the gifts that God gives to make human hearts glad. It's a symbol of joy. Here here we go. Uh, Psalm 104, 14 and 15. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth. Wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. By the way, we're going to see this combination of wine, oil, and grain over and over again throughout the Old Testament. See, it's, it's a symbol of something that brings joy. So here, as he's doing this, he's bringing joy. It was a symbol of God's provision for his people, right along with grain and oil. Deuteronomy chapter 11, as God's talking about when they get into the land that he was going to promise, he said, I will provide rain for your land in the proper time, the autumn and spring rains. You'll harvest your grain, new wine, and fresh oil. Again, you've got this grain, wine, and oil all throughout the Old Testament. It was a symbol of God's provision. It was a symbol of joy. It also was a symbol of judgment when it was withheld. See, we saw in Deuteronomy that if they had obeyed God, that he would give them grain, new wine, and oil. But then in Joel chapter 1, verse 10, it says, The fields are destroyed, the land grieves. Indeed, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the fresh oil fails. So what you find is that, that when God's blessing his people, there's wine to drink. When God removes his hand and starts judging his people, he removes that wine from them along with the grain and along with the oil. So it's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of God's provision. It's a symbol of God's blessing. Interestingly, just a few chapters later, Joel begins talking about what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. When, when God restores the nation, and actually we know it's further on towards the end when he fully establishes everything about his kingdom. Here's what it says in Joel chapter 3. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the streams of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will issue from the Lord's house, watering the valley of Acacias. So part of the promise in the coming of the Messiah is this idea of abundant joy, of abundant sweet new wine. And there's another passage, by the way, we go to other passages. I don't have these on the screen, but like Isaiah 25 talks about God preparing a choice feast for his people with choice cuts of meat and vintage wine. Wine is this picture of God's joy that he brings to his people as he blesses them in incredible ways, okay? 
So do you see what Jesus is doing here? It's not just that he is making wine because he was keeping his family from being dishonored. Instead, he's showing that he's bringing in the kingdom that's the beginning of this wine. Now, I mentioned it's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's kind of a lot. In case you want to do the the math on it, that's 725 to 900 modern bottles of wine. In case you're like me and you have no idea really how much that is, that's at five servings per bottle of wine, then that ends up being somewhere over 3,600 to 4,500 individual glasses of wine, which is enough for a five-hour party with 700 people drinking wine, okay? To give you some perspective. Jesus doesn't just make some wine. He makes an abundance of it. So here at this unknown wedding in the backside of nowhere with no real details to go off of, the the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah, quietly all of a sudden makes this overabundance of wine, showing that he's bringing his kingdom to bear and that there's joy there. The first miracle is that he's not just making any wine. He's making the best wine. Somebody I was reading said, man, wouldn't it be great to have a bottle of this now? Can you imagine how delicious that wine must be if Jesus made it? All of this, by the way, is foreshadowing another wedding, the greatest feast that the world will ever have, the time when Jesus takes the church home to be his bride. Revelation chapter 19 talks about this. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude like the sound of cascading waters and the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now pause right there. That idea of the sound of thunder or of waters, it's, it's like if you've ever been near Lane Stadium and not in the stadium, but you hear this loud cry coming up from the 60,000 people who are cheering when a, a touchdown's made or even when they're doing the let's go Hokies. It just sounds like this loud thunderous noise, right? That in the middle of that, they're saying, hallelujah, because the Lord God Almighty reigns. There's this massive assembly who's declaring that God reigns over everything. He says this, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has prepared herself. The bride is God's people. The bride is the church. We get to be there. If you're here and you're saved, that means that you get to be a part of this celebration. The bride's prepared herself and is ready. It says then, Last verse there, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, the words of God are true. So what Jesus is doing at this quiet wedding on the backside of nowhere is he's quietly bringing joy. He's quietly removing shame. And why do you say quietly, by the way? Because did you catch that not everybody noticed? Who figured this out? Well, look at verse 9. When the head head waiter tasted the water after it became wine, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then down to verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Who saw what was going on? Those who served him and those who followed him. Right? Only those who are following Jesus and serving Jesus were able to see the miracle that God did. Now, I imagine word got out at some point during the feast of where this wine had come from. But this is what you and I need to realize. Only those who follow Christ find the true joy that only he can give. 
That's it, guys. You you may be able to find uh, somebody who's living a very happy life, but the reality is when the rubber meets the road, if everything falls apart, we know that because Jesus loves us, because he rules and reigns over creation, we uh, are in his kingdom and can have joy. Joy that goes deeper than happiness. Joy that carries us in the most difficult of circumstances because we know he's in charge. Because we know he's loved us. He's cared for us. And that's what we see in verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They saw who Jesus was in this moment. They saw that he's the God over creation because he could take water and make it wine. They start putting the pieces together and start seeing he's the God who's bringing this abundance of wine that's predicted in the Old Testament. He's the God who brings joy and they believe in him. So my question for you is twofold. Have you believed in him, first and foremost, or are you trying to find joy somewhere else? We'll talk about that in just a second. But for those of us who know Christ, how did you do with your joy this week? How did it go? I don't know about you guys. Life just feels really hard right now. It just does. I don't think I I talk to hardly anybody in the course of a week who's like, you know what? This is the best time of my life. I have never had it better. Everything is clicking along just like I want it to. I really don't know that I have met anybody in the last 18 months who would say that. Now, if that's you, keep it to yourself. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I hope that somebody in here is having a better time than, than a lot of folks are. But the reality is, you and I can live lives of joy even in the midst of the chaos of the world. By the way, not only can we, we should. How do you do that, Sean? How do you live a life of joy? Guys, I am really not good at this right now. This is really not something... when we talk about finding joy in the midst of difficulties, this is not the, the golden retriever that followed you home and you kick it to try to get it to go back to where it's supposed to go. And it's just like, oh, look, he's playing with me, right? It's not that kind of mentality. It, it's not this Pollyanna, pie in the sky, rose-tinted glasses. We're, we're not saying that there's not a lot of problems. What we're saying is we know that there's a God who's working all of these things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We know that there's a God who one day at the end of history will be able to sit around his throne and party for more than seven days, drinking the best wine, eating the best food, and celebrating all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf and all that we've been able to do in service to him honor him as that God. That's how you find joy. As we shift our focus, we don't ignore the fact that there's problems. We don't check our problems at the door. We we recognize there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of heartache and there's a lot of frustration and there's a lot of confusion. But in the middle of that, we anchor ourselves to the truth of God's word. You see, Jesus said that this was one one of the things he was doing. John 15, verse 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. All of us have varying capacities for joy. Some of you guys, you're just more even keeled than I am. I'm all over the place, right? But what would it be like, whatever the container is in your heart, that's the joy container? 
what would it be like if that was full? That's the idea behind that complete, is that idea of fullness, of finished. What if you had all the joy that your heart could possibly contain? You know when Jesus said that, by the way? The night before he died. He was facing the cross, and he was explaining to his disciples what was going to happen after he died. And he said, I care so much about you that I want you to have my joy. The joy of the God of the universe. How many of you guys like watching puppy videos on the internet? Okay, I'll own it. Who do you think made puppies playful? God did. Who do you think made flowers pretty? God did. Who do you think made coffee beans to give us life and a faster heart rate that we can make us more anxious? Who made that? God did. The God of the universe who, who made leaves that as the trees are, are almost dying off for the winter, made them turn these brilliant hues the, the God who made babies really cute and smell good, right? The, the God who made all of these things. Can you, can you imagine having the joy that he poured into all of his creation? He says, I want that joy in you. So my question is, are you choosing to focus on that? Are you choosing joy? Again, not ignoring what's going on or not just kind of closing your eyes and saying, cool, it'll all work out, but instead saying, in light of this, I know that God's got a plan. I know that God's gonna work. It hurts really bad and I don't understand it. I don't see the end of this and I don't know why, but I know that God is good and I'm gonna find joy anyway. So nobody could do that. Well, actually, yeah, they can you want a great example of it? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul. Here was a guy who had seen into heaven, literally. God allowed him to see into heaven. And because he saw things that he was not allowed to talk about. Now, if there's ever been anybody who deserved an easy road, you would think the Apostle Paul would be it. Nobody has ever served Jesus more faithfully than this guy to the point where God even revealed heaven to him and showed him stuff that God wouldn't even let him talk about. So what happened? So that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. It's an act of grace, actually, because what do we know that God does with the pride? He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Paul says, to keep me from exalting myself, he gave me a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know if it was a physical ailment. We don't know if it was a mental thing. We have no idea what's going on there. But we know it was something that he hated, something that hindered him, and something that kept him humble. And he prayed three different times, God, take this away from me. God, just, just do it. Just take it away from me. And God never would. What was his response? God said to Paul, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. How did Paul respond? Therefore, I'll most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Now, he wasn't going out looking for pain, but what he was saying was, I take pleasure in weakness and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
That's what it looks like to choose joy. It's not ignoring the fact that the thorn in the flesh never went away. Saying, boy, God, I wonder what you're going to do with this. God, I wonder how you're going to show yourself strong. The very first sign that Jesus gave, by the way, not just a miracle, it's a sign. Miracles are, are anytime God does anything supernatural in a created order. But a sign is demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you may believe in him, and by believing you may have life in his name, like we've said is the purpose of John in John chapter 20. This is the first sign that Jesus gave, is a sign that he's the one coming to bring an abundance of joy. So are you choosing joy? Following Jesus brings joy. But here, let's quickly look at the flip side of this. The second account that John puts right back to back with this is that fighting Jesus brings judgment. Fighting Jesus brings judgment. By the way, when I was working on sermon planning with the other pastors that we're meeting with, we all talked about the fact that we would rather just do the first part of this and not the second part, and that it could be a whole message to itself. And since it's already 1201, they're right. Just take off your watch. It'll be okay. Verse 13, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, this is fast-forwarding to the last week of Jesus' life. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the table. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture that the statement that Jesus had made. Now, stopping right there for right now, did you see the replacement again? Remember we saw Jesus was the one who replaced the the purification? Good? Cool. And we're back. It's been that kind of day. Um, If Satan lives anywhere in the church, it's in the soundboard. I'm just convinced, okay? We got a new one, and it still needs, like, don't put anointing oil on it because I'm pretty sure that's not going to help it. But what we find is that Jesus replaced the purification rites that were symbolized in those pictures. Now we see that Jesus is going to replace the temple itself, which is where God said that his presence would be, and that's where they were to come and worship. Now, this was the place they were supposed to come and worship. And if you'll remember, every year they were supposed to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem where they would have this feast of the Passover. If you're coming from a long way, it was kind of inconvenient to bring the animals that you were supposed to sacrifice. So a system had set up to be able to sell you some of those animals that you might need. Now, on the surface, that's not a bad idea, except for the fact that they set it up in the temple itself. Not only that, they wouldn't let you use Roman money because Roman money was corrupt. So because Roman money was corrupt, then you had to exchange your Roman money for temple money when you got there. And again, maybe not a terrible idea, but the money changers were charging exorbitant exchange rates. So here's what's happened. It would be like if maybe, I I, I tried to think of a good analogy. If we set up here um, something in here that said, if you're going to sing a song in here, you need to buy a hymnal when you come in. 
You can't bring a hymnal with you. You've got to buy one of the hymnals that we have. And these hymnals cost 432 Zimbabwe dollars. So I'm going to need you to be able to exchange your U.S. dollars into Zimbabwe dollars, and I'm going to charge you about, you know, a 35% exchange rate on it. So, you know, if we set that up right outside the doors to the sanctuary, would you imagine that that would kind of disrupt your worship experience? If you come in to worship and we're hawking things out in the the foyer and trying to, to push these on you, would that kind of disrupt things, especially if you know you're getting taken advantage of? Well, this had all happened in the outer courts of the temple. Over the years, this system that may have started out as an okay thing turned into a corrupt system where they were taking advantage of people and they were disrupting what the true purpose of the temple was, which was the place to come and worship God. And so Jesus comes in, you know, the Jesus that brings joy, and he makes a whip and he starts flipping tables. And as he goes through all of these things, he starts driving people out. How's that, by the way, for your Jesus meek and mild kind of picture? Dude literally makes his own whip and starts driving animals out, flipping tables over, dumping out buckets of money, and says, get out of here. What's going on? Well, again, this is something that took place at the very end of Jesus' ministry. So for the last three years, Jesus has been teaching, and he's been preaching, and he's been traveling, and he's given them opportunity after opportunity to understand that he is the Messiah. They've been fighting him the entire way. They've not believed him. They've tried to trick him. They've tried to trap him. They've tried to find some way to get after Jesus. And so finally, Jesus reaches the point where he comes in and says, this is not how it's supposed to be. So here's what we find as we're kind of doing this. I'd love to unpack it a little bit further, but again, the time is kind of getting away from us. The reality is, if you're going to follow Jesus today, you can find joy. If you're not going to follow Jesus you're going to be finding, found fighting against him, and you're going to bring judgment on yourself. Now, that, that's not a very popular thing to say. That's not a very easy thing for me to say. But the reality is, if you're not following Jesus, you're fighting with him. How do we know that? Well, there's a verse we didn't read yet. Pick up there in chapter 2. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to him because he knew them all to, uh, excuse me, since he knew them all and because he didn't need anybody to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. (laughs) He knew how fickle we were. He knew that the crowds that were there that day, they liked the signs. They would drink the wine. They would eat at the times that Jesus made the food. They loved watching people get healed. But when the rubber met the road to following Jesus as their savior, their Lord, their king, they're like, nah, we're out. In fact, it may be that some of these who are celebrating Jesus doing this are the very same ones who in a few days are going to be crying for Jesus to be crucified. So you may think you're in the crowd and you're like, well, I kind of like this Jesus guy. I I just don't know that I really want to follow him. Jesus said, it said that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. He didn't have to have anybody tell him. So my question is, if Jesus were to come to your house today, Would he bring joy? Would he bring judgment? Would he be making wine? Or would he be flipping tables? See, John puts these two stories back to back for a reason. There's only one or two ways to live. 
You either live following Jesus or you're fighting against him building your own kingdom. So which one is it for you today? The Jews asked him for another sign, by the way. And what sign did he give him? He said that he would raise his, that he could destroy the temple and three days later it'd be raised. Again, he's showing that he's the replacement for the temple in Jerusalem. He is the presence of God, not just a symbol of the presence of God. Guys, I don't want you to face that judgment. I don't. The Bible talks about the fact that God has no delight in the death of the wicked. Here's what's so beautiful about this truth. Do you know how you get out of the judgment that you and I rightly deserve? The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us deserve to die for what we've done. So how do we get out of that judgment? Because this one we've been talking about bringing joy took that judgment in your place. See, Hebrews chapter 2, or 12, excuse me, puts these two together. As it's talking about us running the race with endurance, it says that we're to run our life, the, the race of our life, more than a half marathon, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did more than just make wine to bring joy. Jesus died in your place so that his joy could be in you. So here's what I want you to do this morning. Let's just take just a moment and spend some time processing this. Go ahead and close your eyes, bow your head. The reason we do that is not because we're going to do anything weird. It's because we want you to be able to sit quietly and not have a whole lot of distraction going on. That's why in just a minute, Daniel's going to be playing so you have a little bit of background. And so it's not quite so awkward. My question for you is this. Are you following Jesus? If you're trying to find joy anywhere else, it's only going to disappoint you. It may be great now, but nothing will ever satisfy. No job, no career, no affair, no anything else will ever be able to satisfy you apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, have you trusted in Christ? Have you turned from your sin to turn to following him? And then my challenge, because I imagine a lot of the folks in this room have already made that decision to follow Jesus. Are you letting him bring joy in your life? Or are you just trying to grit and bear it? Just, I'm just going to force myself through. I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Guys, Jesus came that we would choose and have his joy in us. So where are you focusing? Guys, I know it's hard. And I'm not saying that you should go around with a smile plastered on your face all the time. I'm saying that you should be able to choose joy to be able to say, you know what, in insults and in hardships and in persecutions, and as I go through these things for the name of Christ, I know that God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. So we lean into it, not because we enjoy pain, but we lean into it because we know this is an opportunity for Jesus to be glorified. You know, we're not the only ones who life is crazy for right now. 
And as you choose to find that joy that Christ brings, that overflowing, abundant joy that he demonstrated through this miracle, that as you choose that, you can impact the world around you to help them to find the joy that you found in Christ. I don't know what you need to do in response today, but I want to give you just a moment to do that. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to have Daniel play for just a moment to give you some time to process what God's saying, and then we'll close. Father, we thank you for the fact that you're a God who loves us. We thank you that you're a God who brings joy. You're a God who brings hope. We know that as you were there at that wedding, you had the ability to make a big deal out of it. But quietly, for those who serve and follow you, you demonstrated your glory. Brings joy. God, would you would you help us to find that same joy? As the psalmist prayed, would you restore to us the joy of your salvation? If we've lost it because of sinful choices where we've turned to doing things our way, would you draw us to yourself and help us to repent and be restored? If it's where we've taken our eyes off of you and have gotten away from that, would you help us then to be able to trust you today? We give you the praise and the honor and glory for all that you want to do.